I think us mentors or lab directors or lab supervisors who have been in this since the beginning, let's go out into retirement and really, whether it's a small one to two day thing or a week or, you know, whatever it is, let's educate these people, train these people. We have to do it outside our clinics these days and keep it in a regional thing where other physicians or other practices are not afraid to send people to be trained. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Today on Inside Reproductive Health, I'm joined by Bill Venier, who has over 30 years' experience in embryology, andrology, and state-of-the-art IVF lab techniques. He holds a Master of Science in Human Reproductive Biology from Imperial at University of London and is certified by the American Board of Bioanalysis as an Embryology Laboratory Director. Bill has trained with some of the top industry professionals in the clinical IVF field in the U.S., U.K., and Australia, and that's the reason why he's on our show today. Mr. Venier, Bill, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Thanks for having me, Griffin. I wanted to speak to you because I've had a few more lab guests on the show recently, so by the time your episode airs, we will maybe have five of our 50 episodes having dealt with the lab. And one pain point that I often hear practice owners and executives talk about is retention of IVF lab staff. It's not something that I can really counsel on, so I wanted to bring someone who can. And first, maybe can you give us some context of is this a problem that you see across labs. I know you talk to a lot of other lab directors and have relationships with a lot of different groups. Is this an isolated phenomenon that some people are seeing more often than not, or is this something in the field where retention of IVF lab staff is really an issue? It is an issue, Griffin. It's tough to recruit new people and get them interested in our field. There's not much out there from educational standpoint. There is a few master's programs and things like that, but a lot of those are people that are already in the field and have already attached to a lab, but, you know, want to get the book smarts behind it and, you know, some education behind getting a TS uh, technical supervisor type certification. So, and then you have to worry about training someone. And then once they're fully trained, are they dedicated to staying with you? Or essentially, once you're trained, it's really the demand outweighs the supply. So these people can go wherever they want, to be honest with you. So you have to do some special things to keep your staff intact. It seems to me like the problem of one should be the solution to the other. That is to say, if the problem with retention is because they're so in demand and they can make good money and have different career options, that should be enticing for recruitment. So why is the same problem that we're having with retention, meaning people can go anywhere, not drawing people into the field for recruitment? That's a great question because early on, you know, when I first got in it, most of us were animal science majors. So we already had a career 
and something else. But we had the manipulation skills with eggs and embryos and that type of thing. So we were, let's say, semi-trained already before moving to the human field and human IVF labs. Nowadays, they're coming to us with really absolutely no experience. And the time and dedication that's needed to train someone is really putting a strain on the lab. The workload has increased, so our time has decreased to train people. I'm not sure if that's answering your question directly. But, you know, once you have someone trained, there could be someone down the, down the street or, you know, an hour away that says, hey, we'll give you double what you're making or something, you know, ridiculous like that. I mean, the lack of supply is definitely driving up salaries and you know, we have to keep up with it. And it used to be, hey, let's look at this every three to five years. This has to be looked at annually. And you have to get together with local lab directors in your area. You know, even if the physicians don't get along, the embryologists tend to get along. The, embryo, the lab directors need to, you know, get together, meet, you know, a couple times a year or something. Hey, this is where we're at. This is, you know, in the range of what we're paying, you know, the tiers of embryology. You know, where do we fit into that? and those types of things. So, and that's going to change in each region. It makes me think of a tangential topic of I tend to be a sort of, uh, I tend to be a free market guy. That is to say, I tend to prefer, prefer free market solutions when they're available. But I do see a limit, not only in our field, but across the market, that there often isn't a market incentive to train newcomers into a specialty and you could say that there would be well that this company need you know this company has a market bound incentive to bring people in to train them because they have those positions to fill but it's often not true for the reasons that you described is that you can put all the investment into training someone and they can go across the street and so i think there is a real market limitation that is not self-fulfilling across specialties and and not limited to ours but so where does the onus fall then who's job should it be to be recruiting embryologists and training lab staff? So one thing this training center can do is polish uh, specific skills on someone that's already in the, in the business. Maybe taking a junior embryologist up a notch or two to do some of the higher tech procedures like ICSI, biopsy, vitrification, those types of things. But also have a three-month course where you're dedicated you know, five days out of the week in those three months to train someone uh, aggressively, to get them from knowing nothing to be able to, to manipulate eggs, embryos, and sperm and be efficient in a laboratory environment. And then you can also, you know, increase that with a month course down the line for high tech stuff. But there's a vital need for outside training. We just can't do it in the in our labs anymore. So who would who do you envision operating, facilitating, launching those regional training centers? Would it be ASRM? Would it be another body? Would it be a for-profit entity? Would it be the universities? Who would do that? Essentially, it could be any of the above. I don't want to pitch my own thing, but we are going to get something going. So it, it's on the private sector. But, you know, something like, 
ABB, they, they're the ones that certify us. So why don't they have something like this? Or, you know, why don't they have someone come to them and say, hey, I'll start it, but I need your blessing on certifying these people. You know, like in uh, over in England, I mean, you have to you have to be certified to be doing embryology work in an IVF setting. I think we need that here. And we would love to do it uh, not only on a national level, but level, but an international level and, and get people trained in joining our field. We need it. Well, feel free to pitch your own thing because my follow-up question was going to be, it sounds like there's someone qualified to do this that sees the market need and there is the market need. So talk to us more about what you want this to look like. Sure. And I'm, I, I'm not going to just pitch myself and, and my desire to get it undergoing and Hopefully that will be in 2020. So, you know, probably the old guard, the past mentors that are, you know, off the bench, you know, here's something they can do pretty much in retirement to do this. Let's get their knowledge out. So I would like to use, you know, I want to use those types of people to come in and give a lecture, but definitely do mostly hands-on stuff. But we want to give the background and history of why we do things the way we do it. Not just teach him how to do something on a bench, but hey, this is why we do this type of thing and how to troubleshoot. You know, where the troubleshooting comes when, when we're in trouble and not prior to. So, you know, us old guard know how to work and, and troubleshoot. If something goes wrong, we, we know how to, how to fix things pretty quickly, where today's generation, they, they'll panic. And we want to teach that. We want to teach there's no reason to panic. There's always a way to fix things. So, and that's what we want to get out there. Just a strong teaching, training on the bench, but definitely the background behind it would be vital. You talk about the background and it makes me think of the Simon Sinek book, Start With Why. I think whenever there's an issue of passing the torch or sustaining an organization or growing an organization, always go back to start with why, and you mentioned the old guard helping the younger embryologist and team members to do that. Well, I talked about this on a previous episode with Sean Reed. I want to encourage the listeners to go back and listen to that episode because I might not be doing Sean's perspective justice. He's a fellow millennial. I'm a, he's even younger than me. And Sean's take really was that there is a less invested generation of embryologists that might be coming through and that they're not enthusiastic about taking over a lot of what you've described. I hope by the end of our conversation, my conversation with him, got him a little bit more optimistic because of the inspiration of starting with why, but do you see the same issue of less engaged younger staff? And do you think it's hopeless? And if so, why? And if not, then what's the solution? It's never hopeless. And I did listen to that podcast. That was very good. He brought up some great points and it's true. And it may not just be the young that's not asking the why. It may be us older ones that are not really contributing to that, we shouldn't be waiting for them to ask the question why. Maybe we should tell them ahead of time, hey, here's how you do it. This is why you do it this way. We have done it different ways in the past. This is the best way to do it, or these are the best two ways to do it. 
this is why we've abandoned certain things, give them some background knowledge of that. And, and again, are we getting too tired? Are, do we have too much stuff to do in the lab where we can't spend that time one-on-one -on -one with people? So we, we are in a catch-22, kind of not to repeat myself too much, but again, increased workload, decreased time to train people, and just increased responsibilities with the lab. I know our lab and probably several labs, we actually have our own office, own administrative staff. Embryologists used to do everything. We used to do SART entry, stats, you know, inventory, all these types of things outside of the lab. But now that the bench work, I mean, the patient load every day keeps us on that bench. So when we walk out of the lab, eight hours at the least, it's probably more like nine to 10 hours a day to come out and, you know, try to do something else. It, it's pretty tough strain, not only on the new people, but, as, you know, on the, on the people that have to train them. So that's the issue. It's, I don't want to blame the young people. It's the workload that is increased drastically. Do you want your IVF lab to be at capacity? Do you want one or more of your docs to be busier? Do you want to see more patients at your satellite office before you decide to close the doors on it? But private equity firms are buying up and opening large practice groups across the country and near you. Tech companies are reaching your patients first and selling your own patients back to you. And patients are coming in with more information from the internet and from social media than ever before, for good or for bad, and you need a plan. A fertility marketing system is not just buying some Google ads here or doing a couple of Facebook posts here. It's a diagnosis, a prognosis, and a proven treatment plan. Just getting price quotes for a website, for a video, or for SEO, that's like paying for ICSI or donor egg ad hoc without doing testing, without a protocol, and without any consideration of what else might be needed. The first step of building a fertility marketing system is the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's the cornerstone on what your entire strategy is built. You don't have to, but it is best to do that before you hire a new marketing person person before you put out an RFP or look for services before you get your house in order because by definition this is what gets your team in alignment. Fertility Bridge can help you with that. It is better to have a third party do this. We've done it for IVF centers from all over the world and we only serve businesses who serve the fertility field. It's such an easy way to try us out. It's such a measured way to get your practice leadership aligned and it's a proven process to begin your marketing system. Without it, Practices spend marketing dollars aimlessly and they stress their teams and they even lose patience and market share. Amidst these changes that are happening across our field and across society, if you're serious about growing or even maintaining your practice, sign up for the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's at fertilitybridge.com or linked here in the show notes. There is no downside to doing this for your practice, only upside. Now, back to Inside Reproductive Health. So we've got an issue with recruitment. There's not enough embryologists coming into the field relative to the demand. We've got an issue with training because senior lab directors and embryologists have less time to be able to train, motivate, form younger team members. And then we have the retention possibly as a symptom of this because folks can go just about anywhere. But before we solve these other two problems, let's talk about how we can solve retention because from what I understand, you're doing a pretty good job of it despite these two other factors. So how do you retain staff before we as a field solve these problems of recruitment and training? Sure. Our program has always been looked at as very generous. So 
things that we do do is staff retreats. So get out of the office, totally on the clinic itself to do happy hours, do, you know, an uh, enormous holiday party. But every other year, we take a trip and it's been international, it's been national, but it is paid for by the physician owners. And it's usually for a, a long weekend these days. It's tough to shut down, but it's usually for a long weekend. Try to pick something all inclusive so no one has to worry about paying for stuff once we get to Hawaii, Paris, Puerto Vallarta, Cabo San Lucas, Napa. You know, we've been to some awesome places. And yeah, the treatment of your staff, you know, I'm just speaking of myself, treat every individual like yours. They're equal to you. And I think I've, even though I'm the, the lab director, the boss, I tried to be elbow to elbow. I'm in the dirt with them as much as possible, as much as I can do for them. When we're short-staffed, I got to jump in there. And I just want them to hopefully understand that I've got their back. I know they have mine. We may not be the highest paying clinic, but we have to be pretty close. So again, we you have to keep up with, with, with what the demand is giving out there. And if people are paying really high salaries, well, you know, we got to sit down and look at that and hopefully, you know, treat our staff that way. And, you know, they'll, I'll lose some because they may chase, you know, a 60% raise and I can't stop someone from doing that. I'm not, am I going to, you know, burn my bridge with that person? There's no way I understand it. So we are a small family. I treat people. This is my second family. So, and I think everyone has really adhered to that and, you know, it's tough when we have different personalities and stuff. We have to gel, just like families. We're going to get in a fight once in a while. We're not going to like each, you know, each other for a day, but got to talk it out and get through it and just understand that, hey, everyone's voice is important. Everyone's job is important and go from there. That perspective of viewing the team as family, um, jumping in when things get really busy and you're there elbow to elbow with them reminds me of my second Simon Simic book recommendation of the episode, which is called Leaders Eat Last. So I recommend that listeners who are facing a couple of these issues, if they want some reading on two of the principles that Bill's brought up this far, first is called Start With Why. The second is called Leaders Eat Last, both by Simon Sinek. I want to help break down some of the math because one of the benefits that you mentioned, in addition to very competitive higher tier salaries is a long weekend, for example. And you said the words Hawaii and Paris and all inclusive. And I can hear a lot of practice owners just saying, gosh, how much does that cost? Well, I don't know the math of all the airfare, depending on the size of a team, but let's say it's 20, 30, $40,000. Who knows? I would suggest that comparing that against the, what it costs to train somebody else, what it costs to pay somebody overtime or what it costs to try to negotiate contract of somebody who left and you're trying to get back or someone who has all the leverage that it's a lot less expensive than that. But whose responsibility is it to make that business case? Because if we look at a lot of independently owned practices or a lot of practices, whether they're in the universities or they're privately owned, the lab director is often not one of the proprietors. So can there be tension in making that business case to the principals or to management? And 
how do you best make it? So I can speaking for myself, I am a part owner. So it, I am in, in that conversation. So let me go back to the trips. It's usually every other year. Sometimes it's three years, in, you know, two years and it's a third year out. What we feel is this is when you get into a mode where, hey, everyone is kind of relaxed in their position and, you know, hey, what can we do to push them maybe to do a little bit extra, a little bit more to increase, whether it's patient satisfaction, you know, whether it's revenue or patient volume itself. So it, these trips are incentive-based. So it's usually a tiered thing. We've never not hit the top tier. But so it is something where everyone really takes pride in it and does their best to contribute to making that top tier trip possible for everybody. So, you know, the, the ownership comes up with it, but it's really driven, once that incentive, the incentives are out there, it's driven by the leaders of each department. It, it really is something to, to kickstart, hey, how can I be a little bit better? And that's what, all we need is every couple of years, we need someone just to be a little bit better and not just doing the everyday thing and just, you know, and be happy with that. Let's just push a little bit every once in a while and we'll, we can achieve greater things. And off-site retreats like that are critical for that type of thinking. I really don't think it can be understated. I know I've had this conversation on the show before, not about with lab staff, but about off-site retreats. And sometimes people cheat and they say, well, you know, we want to get everybody in, so we'll have it at the office. I just think it's a completely different dynamic. Even if you're just two hours away, if, if you're just without of reach of the normal distractions of daily life and of office life, yeah. then the the capacity for long-term thinking and getting the team to think about the vision as opposed to the rudiment or the minutia of what they typically have to bear. I just think it's, it can't be understated. Yeah. And that's why, you know, again, it's, that's a big reason why we retained, you know, not only lab staff here, but, you know, in all departments, uh, we don't lose too many people, you know, to, to unhappiness. We've lost a few, you know, but for the, for the majority of stuff, we, we, we do pretty well. You mentioned a principle of not burning bridges, which I'd like to explore a little bit further because I think this is so crucial for, it's technically not recruitment or retention, but we simply don't exist in career field any longer, not just in our field, in general, where a person is going to advance their career the most by staying in one company. It just typically isn't the case. People are going to advance the most in their career by switching companies every three to seven years which means that it's almost always going to be in someone's interest to move eventually. And if that's the case, it can also be the case that it's in their best interest to come back at some point. And if they come back, they're going to be even more valuable. If, and if you're able to maintain that relationship, you might be the person that they come back to in three years or, or shorter if the grass isn't greener. But I love hiring employees from that have had a different experience so that 
they can see what our management style and culture really is compared to something else. And I certainly invite them to come back if they left on good terms, because they will have all that experience elsewhere that might be valuable to bring in to our organization. Discuss that a bit. Yeah, sure. That's a, that's a great point because there's more than one way to do it right. So yeah, I mean, we've had in other departments in a clinic, not necessarily the lab, but people have come full circle and they've come back, you know, including myself. I left, but I, I left to get my master's. So I completely stopped working and went over to London because there was nothing here. However, it is great to do, to get outside perspective on things, but not only, you know, kind of rehiring staff, but we used to, and I've kind of switched that a little. We used to bring someone in every, you know, three, four years from outside. Another, you know, well-known lab director would come in and just for the day. And at the end of the day, give me your pros and cons of, you know, how we're doing. You know, what can we do better? What can we do different to be better? And I'm starting to send people out to, to do things in other labs. So, again, the embryology field is very, they have a good, great camaraderie. So not only at conferences do we hang out and have fun, but, you know, we have our social networks that we ask questions about and no one's afraid to ask a question. And that's great. And then it is very good. And I think it should probably be used more and more, maybe more of an annual thing of bringing other lab people in for a visit to your own lab or sending someone out to visit another lab. I think we have that ability to do it and we should do it more often. That way, you know, you're not really rehiring people that come back to the air. Unfortunately, they don't really come back to San Diego because the weather's great, but the taxes are off. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, you, you saw, I was hoping to slide a weather barb in there coming from Buffalo, <laughs> New York. But let's talk about the networking a little bit more because I didn't know this until just before our conversation, that you founded a group, which I can't find on the, on the group's website, I can't find what the acronym stands yeah. for. It's SCRB SoCal. So I'm going to guess that I'm going to take a stab. Southern California Assistant Association of Assist, Associated Reproductive Biologists. Okay. And why did you start that group? It was actually started by me, but through someone else. I'll mention Barry Bear had said, hey, we have NCARB in Northern California. I think it'd be a good time, a good time to start and a good thing to start something down here in Southern California. So we kind of took, you know, somewhat of their model and said, yeah, I mean, let's do this. And we, you know, we're trying to go from LA down. We, once in a while, we get people from Santa Barbara and stuff because there's not too much going on in that area. LA kind of has something, but with reprodu uh, re, uh, reproductive endocrinologists involved and stuff. We want to keep it at a lab level, not at a lab physician level. That way we can really speak our mind and not be afraid, you know, of a physician cracking down like, hey, you can't say that kind of thing, or you can't ask that question or something along those lines. We're willing to share stuff. We don't keep secrets. And we're willing to reach out when something is not going right. Like, hey, my pregnancy rates aren't going great. Has anyone else seen a dip here in the area? Is there something going on? What media are you using? Those types of things. So it's one, it's a good, let your hair down, have a couple of cocktails and listen to a speaker. But really, 
get together and rub elbows and ask questions and that type of thing. So, and CU is new in the area, you know, and it's really a great thing. And I think it's all over the country. I mean, we have these things all over the place and it's, it's really, really good. So, and maybe that's something that we've considered too. Maybe an embryologist from SCARB could go to an NCARB meeting or a meeting in Chicago or New England, just to get different perspective. Bill, you've given us so much insight into the challenges and opportunities for lab teams. How would you like to conclude about growing, retaining, and nurturing embryologists, lab directors, and lab staff? Again, I think us mentors or lab directors or lab supervisors who have been in this for the, since the beginning, let's go out in retirement and really, whether it's a small one to two day thing or a week or you know whatever it is, let's educate these people, train these people. We have to do it outside our clinics these days and keep it in a regional thing where other physicians or other practices are not afraid to send people to be trained. It's not, we have to take the competitiveness out of it. We need people to, to get us in the future. We need, we need to grow these people, as you said, or the future doesn't look bright. So I really think it's got to be outside any programs, not within your clinic these days. Very well said. Bill Venier, thank you very much for your contribution to Inside Reproductive Health. Griffin, thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.